the Judcast, hoping there's not a third act twist, with Ian Morrison, Haratina Mogashanu, Samuel Lesky, Jake Stabo Morgan, Imogen Tower, Amy Sardars, Cami Bogue, and Michael Bright. The Judcast, December 2020 edition. Hello, and welcome back to The Jodcast. I have a couple of new voices in the studio with me this afternoon. So, would you like to maybe give a couple of brief introductions as to what you'll be doing in the department? Yeah, sure. I'm Imogen, I'm a first year PhD, and I'm researching simulations of galaxy clusters. And hello, I'm Amy. I'm an MPhil student in the department and I work on low noise amplifier design for radio telescopes. Excellent stuff. In the show this time, Michael Wright interviews Kastav Batu about Nisanyev Zeldrich effects. And Ian Morrison, Haratina Mogasanu and Samuel Lasky take a look at what's happening in the December night sky. But first, before all of that, here's Kami Bogue for this month's news. In the news this month, the detection of radio emission possibly caused by an exoplanet's magnetosphere and a mysterious signal that might have come from our closest star system. First up, potentially the very first radio emission from an extrasolar planet has been detected in the constellation Buotes by an international team of scientists who published their findings on December 16th. The system of origin is named Tau Buotes, a binary star system 51 light years away. The exoplanet in question is a so-called hot Jupiter, a gas giant that is very close to its host star. The signal was detected using LOFAR, a radio telescope in the Netherlands. In fact, a number of potential exoplanet radio emission candidates were observed, but only the Tauber-Oti system gave a significant radio signature. Two years ago, Cornell postdoctoral researcher Dr. Jake Turner and his team examined the radio emission of our very own Jupiter and used this data to predict what one might expect to observe from distant Jupiter-like exoplanets. The strength and polarisation of the radio emission detected from this particular exoplanet is indeed compatible with the theoretical predictions made from this earlier research, leading astronomers to believe that the signal may have been emitted by the planet itself. Observing an exoplanet's magnetic field gives really valuable insights into the system. It has implications for the atmospheric properties of the planet, as well as information on its interior and the physics of the interactions it will have with its host star. Here on Earth, for example, the planet's magnetic field is hugely important for life, protecting us and shielding us from solar winds, cosmic rays and atmospheric loss. It's worth noting, however, that the signature is fairly weak, and uncertainty remains on whether or not these observations imply what we think they imply. Follow-up observations should hopefully give confirmation, opening up potentially an entirely new way to observe exoplanets. Next up, staying in the radio regime, another intriguing signal has been detected from the direction of Proxima Centauri. Some listeners may be aware that Proxima Centauri is the closest star to our own sun, a red dwarf star only 4.2 light years from Earth, incredibly close by cosmic standards, though it's actually too dim to be seen from Earth with the naked eye. This particularly peculiar signal was picked up by the Parkes Telescope in Australia last year, in fact, and had only recently been investigated, flagged up by Shane Smith, an intern at Berkeley, as part of the Breakthrough Listen project. The Breakthrough Listen project was launched in 2015 and buys observing time on radio telescopes around the globe to search for intelligent extraterrestrial life. This pursuit, more commonly known as the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, or SETI, looks for so-called techno-signatures, signals that do not fit in with any currently known natural astrophysical processes, but instead are thought to be a mission caused by the technology of another civilization, as is implied by the name. 
In order to end up in front of a researcher, any potential techno-signature first has to make its way through a number of automated tests. The aim is to eliminate any obvious terrestrial interference, such as mobile phones, microwaves, and so on. But even with these tests in place, hundreds of candidates routinely make it through. There's plenty to look at. It was tasked to Shane Smith, an undergraduate intern, to examine data taken by the Parkes Telescope, originally used to observe Proxima Centauri for about 26 hours as part of a stellar flare study. It was in late October of this year that he spotted something strange. Very sharp, narrow band emission around 982 megahertz. Sophia Sheik, who led the ensuing analysis, said that this was the most exciting signal found from the Breakthrough Listen project thus far. The signal has since been dubbed BLC1 for Breakthrough Listen Candidate 1. So what do we know about Proxima Centauri? At least two planets are known to orbit the star. The first was discovered in 2016, named Proxima b, and is very close to the Red Dwarf. It is around 1.2 times Earth's size and has an 11-day orbit. Even though the planet is so close to the star, it is still part of the habitable zone, the region around a star in which liquid water could exist on the surface of a rocky planet, as Proxima Centauri is much cooler than our Sun. The second planet, roughly seven times the size of Earth, named Proxima c, was found in 2019, much further from the star in a 5.2-year orbit. Of course, neither of these planets would be conducive to human life, and there are a number of reasons why researchers remain very sceptical of the signal thus far. For Proxima b, for example, in the habitable zone, its close proximity to its host star bathes it in radiation. Solar flares unleashed from Proxima Centauri would easily strip away an Earth-like atmosphere, as was shown by NASA scientists in 2017. Indeed, as stated earlier, the original study with the Parkes Telescope was set to inform researchers on how solar flares could affect the star's planets. Proxima b is also tidally locked, one side being eternally in day and the other eternally in night. Furthermore, the statistical probabilities of finding two forms of intelligent life so close together, around our sun and around our closest neighbour, whilst not detecting life anywhere else thus far, is incredibly low. For now, months of further analysis are yet to come, and while astronomers are almost certain that this will not turn out to be extraterrestrial intelligence, they hope to be proved wrong. And either way, this certainly remains one of the most interesting signals found by Breakthrough Listen to date. Thanks for that, Cami. Now, Michael Wright interviews Kaustaf Basu about the sonyev zeldovich effect and what we can learn from measuring it. Hello, this week we have Dr. Kaustaf Basu from the University of Bonn. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, you are interested to, in knowing what I do, which is, has a very technical sounding name called sonyev zeldovich effect which is basically two Russian scientists from Moscow who discovered some effect that's useful for cosmology in the 70s. And after almost like 50 years of their prediction, they themselves believed this this would be never measured. And we are making progress in measuring that, understanding that better, and that's what my research is about. So I can try to explain what that effect is. Uh, so, firstly, then, could you explain what the Sonyev Seldovich effect is? Yeah. So, there is the oldest light in the universe, which is called microwave, cosmic microwave background. It is, uh, it is essentially what we call the afterglow of the Big Bang, when the universe was extremely hot and uh, opaque to lights and became transparent and it emitted some light, just like our everyday light in normal light frequencies. But the universe has been expanding and this light has lost its energy and now we see them in microwave frequencies. So this light has very well understood properties, which is we call a black body spectrum. 
This is uniform everywhere, no matter where we look. But if we look into the direction of galaxy clusters, which are the most massive, well-defined objects in the universe, they have a very hot plasma inside that. And this plasma scatters the photons of this cosmic microwave background. So Sunyaev Zeldovich's effect is nothing but the signature of this scattering. Okay, so does this then mean that you can detect galaxy clusters by finding them? Exactly, so that is what we do. We actually try to make a map of this uh, cosmic microwave background and we know at certain frequencies this Sunyaev Zeldovich effect causes a shadow, which means if you see that cosmic microwave background at zero level and you subtract that from your map, then the galaxy clusters show as a negative signal. And there is nothing in astronomy that shows as negative signal. And that's why it's super easy to find clusters by this effect, because just pick up the negative spot on the map. Lovely. And so we now know from this effect then that the clusters are there. Is there anything else that the effect can tell us about those clusters? Yeah, of course. Um, the scattering uh, encodes a lot of information. So just finding them by seeing that that scattering is happening is one thing. But measuring the energy of the scattered signal gives us additional information. For example, what was the energy of the electrons that made the scattering? This energy gives the temperature. Is the cluster moving with respect to us or not? That gives another signature. Is there some other kind of exotic electrons in the cluster? It gives that signature. So all these things has different applications for cosmology and astrophysics. Okay. And these extra bits of information that you can find out from the effect, how far are we at the moment in finding those things out? Yeah. So SC effect itself has been phenomenally successful in finding galaxy cluster in just 10 years. So the first detection of clusters using the AC, by the way, AC is to uh, effect was in 2009, which is just over a decade ago. And in just 10 years, we have now like more than 2,000. So from 1 to 2,000, we have grown in 10 years. But, and in the next 10 years, new uh, experiments and telescopes are coming that will probably do this tens of thousands. So we'll have another factor of 10 increase. What else? Uh, yeah, but these other effects that I was mentioning, like measuring temperature of the electrons or measuring velocity of the clusters, these are not convincingly done yet. Uh, we are on the verge of doing that, and that's why I think this is super exciting time to do these kind of things. Okay. And you say we're on the verge of doing yeah. that. Is there any particular instrument then that allows you to be on the verge of doing right. that? I mean, the first idea of what can realistically be done was uh, shown by the data from the Planck satellite, which was the ESA mission dedicated to cosmology and CMB. And with this data, we have done tremendous things. And it's very good data, very well understood. We know what we are doing there. But unfortunately, the sensitivity and angular resolution of Planck data is not good enough to study the secondary effects that we want to do. But now, new generations of ground-based experiments are online. The some are already taking data from the Atacama Desert or South Pole. Some new are coming in the next five years. We'll have a lot of new data from ground. A new Japanese-US spacecraft called Lightbird will fly in about six, seven years. 
still have not good angular resolution, but fantastic sensitivity. So we can start doing many of these things. So as I, I like to say that the last 10 years are great for finding clusters with the SE effect. Next 10 years will be great for understanding these clusters with the SE effect. So in the next 10 years, we find out more about these clusters. What in particular is going to be your role in that? You work, you ah, Me, yes. Um, I have a specific goal. I want to measure these cluster velocities with SC effect. You know, the way we do cosmology with galaxy clusters now is um, it's kind of static picture. We take snapshot at different distances, which you call redshift, and we count. So it's kind of, we see at different distance how many objects are there. But that's it. We call it structure formation, but we don't really see things moving per se. If we can see velocities of all these clusters, then we can actually see how the structure is actually moving. And I think that will be fantastic for cosmology. So that is a goal. That does seem very useful to have that moving picture then. So is there any particular thing you expect to find out from the velocities that you calculate? Right. So yeah, there are two things one can do. What this is the effect measures is really the momentum of the electrons. As we all know, momentum is the product of electron mass times velocity. So if some astrophysics person gives us the mass of the electrons in the clusters, I can do go cosmology with the velocities. Why cosmology? Because velocity directly measures what this universe is made of how much dark matter, dark energy, pushing things around, how fast the class structure is forming, which we call growth rate. It's the best, cleanest measurement we know. On the other hand, if you trust your cosmology, and you say, I know the velocity, I directly use the AC measurement, what they call leptometer, to measure how much lepton, the, the ordinary matter, electron and protons, are inside galaxy cluster. This is will be the one of the cleanest ways to measure the total mass, not only hot uh, uh, ionized plasma, but everything, all the ionized plasma, even at cold temperature. And that is one of the challenges because, you know, uh, in the nearby universe, we don't have a very good census of all the variants, all the electron cell protons. From the high red, or the cosmic microwave background, we know exactly how much is there. We see this in the CMB. But somehow they are somewhere hidden in the nearby universe. We believe they are hidden in large-scale cosmic structure called filaments. They are at low enough temperatures so that don't emit X-rays, and they are very diffuse, so very difficult to detect. How should we go about that? And AC effect will be one way to do that. So that's what you're doing. So from that, then, what's brought you to Manchester? All oh, right. Yeah. Well, Manchester is, of course, you know, uh, this is one of the largest astronomy departments in Europe, and I am impressed how many active scientists. Are. You know, I work in an institute with one-tenth of this personnel, University of Bonn Astronomy. And that's uh, it's great to be here. I've been to UK and other places, but not here. So it's, uh, I'm very happy I came. And, of course, a good old friend of mine who invited me, and we want to push some of this. He's an excellent theoretician. He's calculating many hidden details of this SC effect from theory. I'm a more of a data analysis and observer, so I just think how to put his theories into practice, 
how which kind of observation I should make and which which telescope I should th- think of. So then we are trying to do this together and yeah. Ah, very good. Getting the theorists and the observers working together. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, they should uh, have a clear idea. I mean, it is great to um, make predictions. I mean, great theoreticians in the history of science have done that, irrespective of worrying if the models will ever be discovered. I personally find this exciting if I can some actually realize something in the next five to ten years. That excites me. If I see that this thing will be happen after um have you around. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you. Goodbye. Bye. Thanks for that, Mike. Now we come to that part of the show where we fit in all of those other bits we can't quite fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. Okay, so for my odd and end, I'd like to discuss the recent distance verification of the furthest and oldest galaxy ever discovered. So there was a team of astronomers from the University of, University of Tokyo uh, that recently used the Keck-1 telescope in Hawaii to determine the distance to and the age of the ancient GZNZ-11 galaxy. And they've concluded that the galaxy is the most distant galaxy ever observed, and also the oldest, In fact, it's so distant that it defines the boundary of the observable universe. So um, GZN Z11 had previously been observed before, back in like 2016, um, and astronomers suspected it may be the furthest detectable galaxy, uh, which it's a distance of 13.4 billion light years away, which is 134 plus 30 zeros kilometers, so extremely far. But yeah, so it had been observed already, but the team at the University of Tokyo wanted to verify that and get a a really good, accurate measure of the distance. Uh, So they did that by measuring the redshift of the galaxy. And just as a brief tangent there to describe what redshift is. So as light travels, it stretches out and basically becomes more red. And you can actually look at how red and stretched a light signal from an object is such as like from a galaxy, and use that to figure out how far the light has travelled, which tells us actually how far away that galaxy is. So it's a really cool technique, and uh, that's what they did to measure the distance to this galaxy. Uh, They did that by looking at the ultraviolet uh, light signal, which had already been detected by the Hubble Space Telescope in 2016, but uh, the the Hubble observation wasn't sensitive enough to get a really accurate value for the redshift. So they chose to use the MOSFIRE spectrograph, Uh, which is on the Keck-1 telescope in Hawaii, which takes uh, a really detailed look at the ultraviolet light signal. I don't know if either of you have used any data from Keck-1 ever or know much about it at all. Uh, I haven't, no. But I was going to ask what wavelengths these observations were taken in. Yeah. um, Uh, Ultraviolet. Yeah, I know it's in the ultraviolet because we're looking at uh, like carbon-3 lines um, and oxygen-3 lines as well. Ah, um, okay. Yeah. So I would guess those lines would be in the ultraviolet? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not an expert on molecular lines. There are millions <laughs> of them in any given yes. library. So many. Yeah, I think the first observation, they were looking at the Lyman alpha break. That's what Hubble was looking at, and that was the first signal that they saw from the galaxy. But then, yeah, they've looked at these oxygen and carbon lines to get a more accurate measure of the distance and then yeah to get the redshift from that but no i've not used MOSFIRE or any any keg data at all but yeah so they, they, they did get this really accurate estimation of the distance they found the redshift to be it's basically 11 
technically 10.957, but basically 11, which is massive. It's like way higher redshift than basically any other galaxy ever detected. I think the previous record was like 8.8 .8 or something. Oh, wow. Yeah. They've, <laughs> they've really pushed the envelope with this then. Yeah, it's really far. It's like unexpectedly bright as well. It's really luminous, which has meant it's been, yeah, obviously they've just detected it, so it is luminous, but it's so bright that it'll be really good for studying in the future and looking more at that period of history because it's only a few hundred million years after the start of the universe. So obviously a very unstudied period of time, but yeah, hopefully it can shed some light on, yeah. on that early universe time. And maybe it's really interesting. It's, yeah, maybe it's very active because of star formation and destruction mm. at that point in the universe. Yeah. It's being seeded with carbon and oxygen. Yeah. Because obviously that's not primordial stuff. Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's like star formation and things like that. All right. For my odd and ends for, well, previous listeners of this show will know this, that unfortunately I tend to have a bit of a mini rant lined up for my <laughs> odd and end at the state of the astronomical world. And I think... Someone's got to do it. Yeah, somebody has to do it. And so one topic that I've talked about in the past, so this was the June 2019 episode, where the University of Manchester played host to Dr Jim Green, NASA's chief scientist. And we were lucky enough to have him over to give a talk titled The Importance of the Moon, in which he discussed the importance of the moon to... NASA and American astronomy over the coming decade. And one topic that was discussed in particular was the prospects of resource extraction on the moon, and particularly oxygen and water ice, with a view to establishing a refuelling station there to support further manned missions to Mars. And there's been a paper come out in recent weeks Yes, so this paper was accepted 25th of September, so a couple of months back now, published in Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society, and it's titled Concentrated Lunar Resources, Imminent Implications for Governance and Justice. What these authors basically posit is that more and more nation states and private contractors alike are going to be looking to the moon over the coming decade. This isn't an issue of far future sci-fi. This, this is going to happen within the coming years. And these authors look at particular sites on the moon that may be of interest to these various actors and how they might potentially interact with each other once they get there. They posit some solutions such that I'm hesitant to say that the moon could be used because that just doesn't sit right with me on some level, but that people can go there for mutual benefit instead of competing against each other and leaving everybody worse off in the process. So they list a few nation states in particular that are looking to the moon and they name five. So that's the US, Russia, Japan, India and China. And you'll recall that China recently had a successful landing of the Chang'e 4 lunar probe and there will be future ones coming up, with Chang'e 7 hopefully set to land on the lunar south pole by 2024. And the lunar poles are one of these regions of interest that the authors talk about. 
which are interesting for both scientific and commercial reasons. One of them that I'd like to bring up very quickly, because it has a cool name, are the Peaks of Eternal Light. Imagine that. That's a brilliant name. Who came up with that? That's a good name. Yeah. That sounds like where you would go in a sci-fi role-playing game to get quests. That's where you'd go, all the way up to the top of the mountain, and there'd be some character up there who would dispense wisdom upon you. Yeah, and they definitely just, like, float a couple of inches off the ground and radiate slightly. Oh, yeah, (laughs) definitely. So the peaks of Eternal Light are valuable because, as their name suggests, they are, well, they receive almost continuous illumination from the sun. And the, the author's note here in the paper, and so their informal name is somewhat inaccurate. So the utility of regions like this is that if you have access to almost continuous daylight, you have access to almost continuous generation of solar power for whatever purposes you might use, be that to power a radio telescope or to supply maybe some kind of mining operation elsewhere on the moon. So they're attractive for the prospect of providing a stable power source. If you were to go anywhere else on the moon, you would probably be looking at a localised nuclear reactor of some kind, which is going to be more complex to set up and maintain for a number of reasons. There are also some dark spots at the lunar poles, which are of interest to people as well, which the authors refer to as cold traps. So these are craters near the lunar poles, which are in perpetual darkness. And because they're so dark, they're very cold, and primordial material from the moon's formation has survived in them, including significant quantities of water ice. Well, I say ice, even oxygen would be liquid at the temperatures in these craters. We're talking below minus 180 degrees. Yeah, I was going to say, when they say water ice, I'm assuming it's not just liquid water, is it just lots of different liquid elements, or is it something in particular? Um, I assume there are different solid and liquid elements in there. But oxygen and water are the ones which are particularly valuable for humans, either for breathing to support permanent human operations there as a source of water, or as I've already mentioned, you can split it up into rocket fuel. Mm -hmm. Because obviously fuel is very heavy, it's very difficult to get off the earth. So if you can make it on site, there's an incentive to be able to do that. Is there any estimate of how much liquid oxygen there actually is on the moon? Are we going to have like an oil situation run out after a few decades? Ah, that is an excellent question. So the authors estimate that there might be anything up to a billion tonnes of water in these traps. But the number is uncertain. But let's take a billion tonnes as an estimate. We're limited by the resolution of the mapping at this point. Yes, here we are. So the paper says, from one point of view, a billion tons is a lot, which could launch a space shuttle over a million times, or supply a city of one million lunar colonists for a thousand years, provided they adopt efficient water recycling in the manner that astronauts on the ISS do. So the question then comes, who gets access to these sites? Because... The authors only identify four of these craters in the paper, with each of them being about 50 kilometres in diameter. So there are a number of spots on the moon which are going to be extremely valuable to states and companies, and they're going to be limited in number. So at that point, 
competition becomes possible, and they might even be tempted to fight over it if they deem it to be if they deem it to be beneficial to do so. Four is is not a lot to divide up between the entire population of the Earth. No. <laughs> and of course, it's not going to be the entire population of the Earth that has access to it. It's nation states yep. that are able to get out there first. Yep. Or perhaps companies acting on the behalf of one state in particular. So I've talked a little bit about the legalities of doing this in the past, when I've been on the Jobcast previously. Because when we first heard Dr Green's talk back in June of last year, I know there was some disquiet among me and my colleagues, because this was new to us, that there would be an effective gold rush for the moon. We're wondering, mm-hmm. is is this right? Do we have the right to do this? How How will this be governed? And unfortunately, the governing framework around this is, well, it was pretty weak when I talked about this previously, and it's still pretty weak now. So the only treaty which governs this is the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, which all the major spacefaring powers are signatories to. And so the authors quote that, saying that outer space, including the moon and other celestial bodies, is not subject to national appropriation by claim of sovereignty, by means of use or occupation, or by any other means. So what that basically means is, your state actor, whatever they might be, they can't just go up to the moon, plant a flag on a bit they like, and say, right, this is our bit now, all yous can get lost. Is the treaty only covering nations, or does it also cover private companies? No, private companies are not mentioned in this anywhere. Elon Musk is going to get there first, then. He may well do. It could just come along and say, well, we're not going to claim this bit, but we are just going to sort of be here and get in first, and Mm -hmm. the rest of you are just going to have to deal with that. Because private companies will keep pushing ahead with these kind of missions and technologies, regardless of whether or not the laws around them try to catch up. So it makes sense to think about these problems before they happen and try and establish some kind of framework for resolving these disputes which might arise before things get out of hand. That makes sense. And the United States has been thinking about this and they've proposed a set of bilateral agreements as and when they're needed rather than a formally binding international framework with a set of central rules that parties will sign up to and sanctions if you step outside of those. Unfortunately, a formal set of rules like that would be the best long-term solution, but the authors recognise that that's unrealistic on the timescales that we're talking about here. Something like that probably just isn't going to materialise within the next few years. And of course, big spacefaring states are would probably be... be pretty happy to ignore international law if they perceive it to be in their benefits to do so. So one of the best outcomes of this, really, would be to try and work together from the outset, find areas of common interest, such as building landing pads for common use, for example, that all actors can use, such that you don't go landing in other places and potentially kicking up a lot of dust and damaging equipment that other people might have in other parts of the moon. And that also goes for protecting sites such as the Apollo landers as well, because under the Outer Space Treaty you can't lay claim to those either. And there's not an equivalent of 
the UNESCO World Heritage Sites to formally protect them in international law. <laughs> so bizarre to think about, I'm imagining like moon museums in the future. But yeah, interplanetary politics is going to become a thing over our lifetimes, mm. which is kind of scary to think about, but it is coming down the tracks. And as astronomers, we need to be ready for when that happens, because as a community, we have a stake in this as well. I mean, if you speak to any radio astronomer, they have dreamed for decades about building a radio telescope on the far side of the moon, away from all of the RFI that you get on Earth. But again, we run into this issue of scarcity. If you want to build a sizable telescope array, maybe 150 kilometres across on the far side of the moon, again, there's only half a dozen sites or so where that's possible. And of those half a dozen sites, they might also be of interest to mining companies, for example, maybe looking to extract things like uranium or helium-3. I was going to say, I feel like those uh, mining companies are going to have a bit more sway than radio astronomers, probably. Well, it's true that money talks, but if the community can be organised from the offset, we have a better chance of representing our interests. It's all about just being prepared rather than reacting to things. Yeah. So the example that comes to my mind is the Starlink constellation, mm. where I feel the community was probably caught on the back foot, it's fair to say. Yeah. And by the time we've realised that, hey, these these satellite networks which I proposed could cause a problem for our observations, they've already been started to be deployed. It's too late to ask people to stop at this point. I mean, it's, I mean, such a strange two minds about all of this moon stuff. Because on the one hand, like, of course, if it's going to be an amazing source of um, renewable solar energy at the poles, that's obviously great. Um, but yeah, the, the impact and the input of private companies and like just general greed and power from people just feels so inevitable. But yeah, without even spending time to think about what the problems might be, it just feels like there's going to be thousands. Yeah, we we humans have an unfortunate knack of choosing things which are the worst for us. So I think that's what I want to say for this bit as an update on an astronomy adjacent issue and something will which will become more important in the coming years. So for my odds and ends, I thought maybe take it down more of a Christmassy route because it's coming to that point in December. And I thought also with the upcoming Jupiter and Saturn lining up perfectly in the night sky, um, what people are commonly calling the Christmas star, at least I've seen on my Facebook people calling it that, I thought we could look at in the original Christmas story, we've got the star of Bethlehem that all the wise men follow. But I thought, what could that star actually have been back in the day if it did happen? But yeah, I thought, could it also have been a lineup of some of the potentially really bright planets, making an extremely bright point in the sky that was different and didn't last very long, or something like a supernova that lasted only a few days as well? Yeah. Do you guys have any other ideas for this? I didn't really. Yeah. So I heard. Well. I was at a talk discussing this a number of years back now at my local astronomy group, and the speaker proposed that it was indeed a supernova that they followed. Was it the shepherds or the wise men? I think it was the wise men. About the supernova thing. And obviously, if we're assuming this happened, uh, you know, 2020 years ago or whatever, would we still be seeing any effects of a 
supernova going off at that sort of distance from us that it could be seen very clearly in the sky for several days? Would we still be seeing any effects of that now? Um, like, would there be any any telltale signals in the sky? Well, not the supernova itself, but the planetary nebula should be left behind. Yeah. It wasn't there one that went off in, like, I'm going to say, like, the 17th century or something, and you can still see the nebula now. Mm. Yeah. I think the Crab Nebula might have been 1054, I want to say. Yeah, but there was another one that I believe Tycho Brahe observed. But yeah, these these things have gone off in recorded history. Yeah. And we've been able to study them in the meantime. It's interesting. I wonder um, if anyone's worked out actually how close it would need to be to be that noticeable. I'm sure someone <laughs> But I haven't. <laughs> well, I think it just needs to be generally in the galaxy. I mean, supernovae are crazy bright. Yeah, they are massive. I think, well, my plan certainly is to head out after we've done recording this to see if we can find somewhere with a good southwest horizon to try and watch this conjunction. Yeah, yeah unfortunately, England seems to be too cloudy for me today. <laughs> yeah. I have to say, yeah. the weather is not looking great here in Sweden either. I have barely seen the sun all month. I mean, partly yeah. because our days are very short here at the moment, and partly just because it's been really cloudy and grim. Same here in Manchester. Yeah. The worst bit is we haven't even had any snow. Mm. I have been shortchanged. <laughs> yeah, all of this feels so worthless without snow. If it's going to be cold and grey and wet, at least can it be fun as well. One more <laughs> thought on the, uh, on the Star of Bethlehem. Do we have any um, recordings ever of, like, all the planets aligning. Of all? In the <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking <laughs> I'm not sure off the top of my head. Could be incredibly cool. Here we go. Because of the orientation and tilt of their orbits, the eight major planets of the solar system can never come into perfect alignment. Well then, debunked. Now for more detail on what's happening in the night sky this month, here's Ian Morrison for this month's night sky. The night sky... December 2020. As darkness falls, the square of Pegasus is setting towards the western horizon. Up to its left lies the constellation Andromeda, containing the wonderful galaxy in Andromeda M31. Above Andromeda lies the open W shape of Cassiopeia, and down to its left is the constellation of Perseus with the bright star Murphek and the interesting star called Algol, sometimes called a demon star because it winks. It's an occulting binary. And between the two lie a lovely pair of open clusters called the Perseus Double Cluster. And then now rising in the southeast, we have that wonderful winter sky, the constellations of Taurus, Orion, Gemini, and Auriga. In Taurus, we have two wonderful open clusters, the Hyades Cluster, and up to its right, the wonderful little cluster, the Pleiades, the Seven Sisters, it's sometimes called. A long exposure image shows some wonderful blue nebulosity. Lying in front of the Hyades cluster is the bright orange star, the red giant, Aldebaran. Below Taurus, of course, is Orion the Hunter. The three stars of its belt lie above the sword of Orion, containing the Orion Nebula, a wonderful region of star formation. Following those three stars down to the left, you come to the bright star Sirius in Canis Major. Above Taurus lies the bright yellow star Capella in Auriga. 
It lies along the Milky Way, contains some very nice open clusters. And down towards the eastern horizon are the pair of stars, Castor and Pollux, the heavenly twins in general. So quite a lot to see. Long nights, but sadly, many of them cloudy. The planets. Jupiter, along with Saturn, still remains visible low in the sky, west of south as darkness falls, and sets around 1900 GMT at the beginning of December. Towards the end of the month, it will be seen towards the southwest after sunset, and sets by about 1730 GMT. Its magnitude remains at minus 2 throughout the month, whilst the angular size falls a bit from 34.4 to 32.9 arc seconds. Sadly, even when first seen after sunset, it will only have an elevation of about 12 degrees above the horizon, so the atmosphere will limit our views. Now Saturn closely follows Jupiter into the sky, some two degrees behind at the start of the month, but reducing to just six arc minutes on the evening of the 21st. Saturn is best seen, obviously in the south, just after sunset on the very beginning, at the very beginning of the month. Its magnitude remains steady at plus 0.6, whilst its angular size decreases from 15.7 to 15.3 arc seconds. The ring spans some 35 arc seconds across, and at about 22 degrees to the line of sight, sharp well, Saturn starts the month in Sagittarius and moves into Capricornus on the 15th. Sadly again, its low elevation of about 12 degrees when first visible in the evening will limit our views of this most beautiful planet. Mercury will only be visible using binoculars very low in the southeast at dawn during the first few days of the month. On the first, it rises just 45 minutes before the sun, shining at magnitude minus 0.8. It will pass through superior conjunction, that's when it's closest to the Earth, on the 20th of the month. And of course, you may well need binoculars to spot it, but please don't use them after the sun has risen. I've talked about Mars in the highlights. Well, Venus rises in the southeast some two hours before the sun at the start of December, by about half an hour less by month's end. Its magnitude remains at minus 3.9 throughout the month, while its angular size reduces from 11.7 to 10.7 arc seconds. At the same time, its phase, and that's the percentage of the illuminated disk, increases from 89% to 94%, which explains why its magnitude remains constant. Well, finally, the highlights for December 2020. Well, perhaps the really good one is on December the 21st, after sunset. It's the closest visible conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn since the Middle Ages. So let's hope for clear skies. They'll be just six arc minutes apart, that means that with a telescope at moderate power, one will be able to encompass both planets and their brighter satellites, Io, Europa, Ganymede and Callisto with Jupiter, and Titan with Saturn. Let's really hope it's clear that evening. Well, it's still a very good time to view Mars, coming towards the end of its apparition. It had its closest approach to Earth way back in October, when it lay 39 million miles away. At this opposition, happily, Mars has been far higher in the sky than at recent oppositions. Currently in Pisces, shining at magnitude minus 1.1 at the start of the month, 
it can be seen crossing the meridian at about 2030 GMT. By month's end, its magnitude will have dropped to minus 0.3, whilst being due south at 1915 GMT. Its angular size is just over 14 arc seconds at the start of the month, dropping to 10.5 by month's end, reaching an elevation of 45 degrees when due south, as seen from the UK. Amateur telescopes will enable one to see features such as Certis Major on its surface when the seeing conditions are good. After midnight, on the mornings of December the 14th and 15th, we have a chance to view the Geminid meteor shower. The moon is new, so pleasingly its light will not hinder our view. The Geminids can often produce near fireballs, and so the shower, and so the shower is well worth observing if it's clear. Obviously, an observing location well away from towns or cities will pay dividends. The relatively slow-moving meteors arise from debris released from the asteroid 3200 Phaeton. This is unusual, as most meteor showers come from comets, not asteroids. The radiant, which is where the meteors appear to come from in the sky, is close to the bright star Castor in the constellation of Gemini. Obviously, if it's clear, it'll be cold, so wrap up well, wear a woolly hat, and have some hot drinks with you. Late evening, on the night of December the 22nd, 23rd, you have a chance to observe the Ursid meteor shower. The peak rate is just 10 to 15 meteors per hour, so not that great. But pleasingly, this year, the first quarter moon will have set around midnight, so its light will not greatly hinder our view. The radiant lies close to the star Kokab in Ursa Minor, hence its name, and so look northwards at high elevation to spot them. Occasionally, there can be a far higher rate, so it's worth having a look should it be clear. On the night sky page, I give some charts to show you how to find the double cluster in Perseus and also the demon star Algol, along with Andromeda, as I mentioned earlier, and also around New Moon on the 14th of December, and if you're well away from towns and cities, you may be able to spot M33, the third largest galaxy after M31 and our own galaxy in our local group of galaxies. It's a face-on spiral, and its surface brightness is pretty low, so a dark, transparent sky will be needed. And I guess binoculars too, 8x40 or perhaps 10x50. You follow the two stars back from M31 and continue in the same direction, sweeping slowly as you go. To me, it looks like a piece of tissue paper stuck on the sky, just a bit brighter than the sky background. Good hunting for that one. On December the 12th, one hour before sunrise, you may be able to spot Venus and a thin crescent moon. Again, look for the dark side of the moon, which may be illuminated with light reflected from the Earth. That's called Earthshine. On December the 17th, after sunset, you should be able to see Jupiter, Saturn, and a thin crescent moon. Again, look out for seeing some of the Earthshine. And finally, something nice on the moon to look at, on the evenings of the 7th and the 23rd of the month, you have a reasonable chance of seeing what's called the straight wall, or Rupert's Rector. And that's actually best observed either one or two days after first quarter, or a day or so before third quarter, the dates I've given you. To be honest, it's not really a wall, but a gentle scarp. And as Sir Patrick Moore has said, neither is it a wall, nor is it straight. 
Well, a lot to look for this month, and I do hope it gets some clear nights so we can have a really good look at the beautiful heavens that lie above us. Thanks for that, Ian. And for our Southern Hemisphere listeners, here's Harity in Amogashanu and Samuel Leske with the night sky where you are. Kia ora from New Zealand. I am Haritina Mogoshano, Senior Science Communicator at Space Place in Wellington. The evening sky in December is commandeered by the edge of our galaxy visually in the asterisms of Orion and Taurus. The region in question is so beautiful that it simply demands all attention, be it the Pleiades, the Hyades with the beautiful red giant Aldebaran, or Orion with its famous M42. There is something in it for everyone. However, the entire December sky is shattered with bright planets and bright stars at dusk. Jupiter is the brightest object after sunset, low in the west. Saturn is close to Jupiter, above and right of it at the beginning of the month. Mars is due north at dusk, still beautiful and bright. The three brightest stars in the sky are also visible at the same time. Sirius, the brightest true star, is midway up the eastern sky. Canopus, the second brightest star, is high in the southeast. And Alpha Centauri, the third brightest star, is due north. In December, Jupiter and Saturn will be very close as they near their once-in-twenty-years conjunction on December 21st and 22nd, 2020. At their closest, they will be only 0.1 degrees apart. That's just a fifth of a full moon diameter. Remember, full moon is 0.5 degrees. That's half of your pinky at arm's length. They will be in close visual proximity from December 17th to December 26th, when two bright objects in the sky are in the same line of sight, we call the phenomenon a conjunction. Every 20 years, Jupiter, orbiting the Sun in 12 years, catches up with Saturn, which takes about 30 years to do an orbit. Of course, a conjunction is a visual illusion. In reality, Jupiter will be 879 million kilometers away, and Saturn 1,610 million kilometers away mid-month, almost twice further away from the Sun than Jupiter. From Wellington, it would be a bit tricky to photograph or see the two objects through a telescope on the 21st of December, but if you observe them at 9 p.m., when it is not yet night, they will be at about 15 degrees above the horizon. Try and find a place with a clear horizon, otherwise there will simply be two bright dots visible in the west after sunset. Another photo opportunity you could try is when the crescent moon will be above the pair on the 17th of December. Another beautiful visual combination is the line that the brightest star Sirius makes with the second brightest star Canobus. This happens every year about this time of the year. Extend that line south and you will come across the large and the small Magellanic clouds. This is a very good trick to find our beautiful southern dwarf irregular galaxies in the night sky. From a dark sky, the large Magellanic cloud looks like a chunk of the Milky Way has been displaced nearby. The Southern Cross and the pointers are very low on the southern horizon, making the asterism of the frying pan. 
the two pointers are the handle of the pan and Epsilon Centauri or Birdun, Gamma Centauri or Mulifine and Delta Centauri or SAO 239689 are the frying pan. The Southern Cross is the fish frying in the pan. Close to the Southern Cross, the dark region of the coal sack for Maori is the flounder, also frying in our frying pan. Our gastronomical sky also contains the pot in Orion with the bottom of the pot made by three stars of Orion's belt and the handle of the pot constructed from the metal of Orion's sword. The pot is held in place by Eta Orionis. This is the best time of the year to observe our famous Saturn sky galaxies, the Magellanic Clouds. The first person to write about them was the Persian astronomer Al-Sufi, around 964 AD. Explorer Amerigo Vespucci, in a letter about his third voyage around 1503-1504, was the next to write about the Magellanic Clouds and also about the Colsac, referring to them as the three Canopes, two bright and one obscure. And finally, Ferdinand Magellan wrote about it after his voyage in 1519. To spot the Magellanic clouds, you will need a very dark sky and you must use your peripheral vision. With a telescope, the large Magellanic cloud is an amazing sight. One of my favorite deep sky objects, 30 Doradus or Tarantula Nebula, is a cloud of partially ionized gas in which star formation has recently taken place. Just like the Horsehead Nebula in Orion, the Tarantula Nebula in the Large Magellanic Cloud is a place where thousands of stars can form over a period of several million years. Supernova 97A, the nearest supernova in recent years, co-discovered by New Zealand astronomer and Guinness Book record holder Albert Jones, was in the Large Magellanic Cloud. For regions like the Tarantula Nebula, supernova explosions and strong stellar winds from the most massive stars in the resulting star cluster will disperse the gases, now easily visible in telescopes, leaving behind a cluster of stars which have formed. We can see what happens to such stars when we look at the star cluster, the Pleiades. Close to Zenit is Achenar from Eridanus, all the beautiful stars of Grus and Fomalhaut. In Grus, the Grus Quartet is now visible. In Sculptor, the famous Sculptor galaxy is in a good position to observe. This galaxy has a visual magnitude of about 7 and it is visible with the naked eye. It just looks like a blurred star. Sculptor Galaxy is about 12 million light years away from us. A total solar eclipse will be visible from South America on the 15th of December as the new moon disappears into the sun's glare. There will also be a few minor meteor showers, the Geminids and the Leonids, nothing that compares with the Northern Hemisphere's Perseids in August. But this is what we have. Mercury will pass around the far side of the sun on December the 20th and on the 21st, of course, we will have the longest day of the year, the summer solstice. From here, from New Zealand, Haritina Mogoshanu wishes you clear skies so that you can always see the stars and always remember that we are made from the same stardust as they are. 
thanks for that, Paratina and Sam. So, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can do so via our website at www.jobcast.net. Or the Twitter at twitter.com slash jobcast. Or on Facebook at facebook.com slash jobcast. Via YouTube at youtube.com slash jobcast. Or Flickr at flickr.com slash group slash jobcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts and our address is on the website. All right, that brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks go to Kalstav Basu for the interview. Our editors this month were Michael Wright, Tom Scrag, and Hong Ming Tang. And the producer was Michael Wright. Until next time, Jordan. Jordan. <laughs> <laughs>